Well, we're continuing in our preaching series that we've entitled Seeing and Worshipping Jesus. And we're using some verses from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians as our focus. Uh, It's true that we can see Jesus in the Gospels. We see God becoming man. We see Jesus going about and doing good and performing miracles. And at the end of his life, we understand even from the Gospels that Jesus was laying down his life uh, for the sins of the world. And we know that at the end of John's Gospel, he says, these things are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. But if we want to plumb the depths of all that God was doing, in Jesus and allowing Jesus to be uh, so cruelly crucified and then to rise again, um, we need the revelation that was given to God's apostles some little time later, which they taught the church about, which they wrote letters. And fortunately, we have many of those letters now incorporated uh, into our New Testament. And um, the apostles just love telling us more about Jesus, explaining what was behind all that God was doing. It's like pulling the curtain back and saying, look, there's more. Look at the wonderful things that God was doing, showing us the wonder of who Jesus is. And over these past few weeks that we've been looking at this subject, I I hope that you've seen a little more of the riches of the glory of Christ uh, through the scriptures that God has chosen to reveal to us. And I've said it before, but we need to emphasise that everything that God has declared in his word is for us. It's, it's not for his benefit or anybody else's, it's for us, that we might know the glorious plan and purpose that God has for us in Christ. It's not to give us superior knowledge so that we can be puffed up with this knowledge. It's so that we can love Jesus more. It's so that we can savour him and that we can worship him with some substance. Um, In particularly modern Christian worship, it's easy to get caught up with a concept. Yeah, Jesus! You know, and I'm not not knocking that, but do you know the Jesus that you're punching the air about? And it's through uh, these letters that we learn um, much about that. So let's start by reading that whole passage again. It'll come up on the screen, hopefully all the scriptures that you need, but if you want to follow it in your Bible, it's Colossians 1 and verse 15, and we'll go through uh, to verse 23. This Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, who is he? Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. We'll, We'll leave it there. So today, amongst all the different things we've considered about Jesus, we are looking at Jesus the Reconciler. Okay? Jesus the Reconciler and our key verse or verses will be 19 and 20 of Colossians which is, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now Steve dealt with that in wonderfully a couple of weeks ago but just to keep it in context we're looking at it again and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus, the reconciler. Now, unlike some key biblical words, things like justification and sanctification, which we don't use every day, do we? Um, The word that we're looking at today, with its various parts of speech, has some familiarity with our experience. So we've got reconcile, reconciled, reconciliation, reconcilable, and reconciler. And you can probably think of situations in life where you might use these words or you might hear them used. They conjure up um, previous situations of hostility, of separation and alienation, maybe in relation to warring factions. Wouldn't it be great if we heard that word concerning Israel and the Palestinians? Reconciliation. You know, we think, How on earth is that going to happen? Well, with God, all things are possible. What about separated spouses? Couple who've grown away from one another and somehow offended one another. Um, And they need to be reconciled. Or estranged friends. Or even balancing the books. Um, We've mentioned Maxine and CMI Asia this morning. I'm the treasurer uh, of the trust that supports that work from here. And... um, I've got my own records, but every month I get a bank statement and I have to make sure that the bank statement reconciles with my books or rather vice versa, that they're not at odds with one another. So we use that reconciling, reconciliation quite commonly. So reconciliation speaks of making peace, of bringing into harmony, removing obstacles Uh, from that, settling a quarrel, making compatible, making friendly again, restoring that which was lost. We might even use it more personally in terms of our thinking. Somebody gives us a bit of information about a situation, somebody gives us another bit of information about that situation and we can't see how the two things fit together. I don't understand that. How does... How does that work with that? I can't reconcile these in my mind. But sometimes we're given further information and we see just how these two things fit together. They are reconciled in our minds. But here, in this passage, the previous hostility was between God and man and it is deep-seated hostility. 
in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 1, we read, You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Paul, in his first, uh, first chapter of his letter to the Romans, describes many reasons why mankind is at odds with God, why he is alienated from God. And he sums it up like this in verse 28 of chapter 1. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, isn't that our generation? People don't want to retain the knowledge of God. We don't want to teach about God in schools. You go out on the streets, Jesus, never heard of him. So that, that's a feature of our age. They not, don't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. He gave them over to, be, to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They've been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do the very things but also approve of those who practice them. So this alienation from God, this profound alienation, is what produces other alienations. You'll notice there words like God-haters and of course not people not wanting to retain the knowledge of God. But that leads to other alienations and you can see that from this passage how alienation from God leads to disharmony and strife amongst people. This is man's hostility towards God but God in his holiness and righteousness is inevitably hostile towards man. And verse 18 of Romans 1, just before that passage that we just read, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Are you okay? Do you need to go out? Okay. So we have here a situation of mutual hostility in which God is justly hostile to us as we are wickedly hostile to him. How are God and man to be reconciled? Holy God, sinful man, like oil and water, how do you mix the two together? Well, we'll soon be singing the hymn or the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which has the line, God and sinners reconciled. So it's possible, but how? How are God and sinners reconciled? I said earlier that we are generally familiar with the concept of conflicting parties being reconciled, spouses, spouses, uh, unions and management. And in these situations we expect both sides to give ground. There has to be compromise, make concessions and sacrifices. So gradually they come together until the estrangement is at an end. It's a combined effort and everybody knows that. You know, the, the union secretary and the, the, the company boss, 
they're both entrenched in their positions, but when they come to the negotiating table, they know in their hearts they've got to give ground, otherwise there'll be, there'll be no reconciliation at all. They know they have to, to give ground. However, reconciliation between God and man is never presented in scripture as something that's produced by the combined efforts of God and man. It isn't even God starting it and man finishing it. It is entirely of God. It is something achieved by God and offered to us as a gift. It's all of God and it's all of grace. And um, in this, Christianity is unique. It's unique in many, many ways. I guess we still have people who think all religions are much the same. You know, they're different expressions, different cultures, but it all amounts to the same thing anyway. It doesn't. Christianity is head and shoulders above all other religions and this is one of the reasons. In pagan worship it's typical that the offended God, maybe in the form of an idol, has to be appeased, won over. Steps have to be taken to, to repair the broken or threatened relationship making some kind of recompense for the failures of the people, winning over the God. The, the volcano's erupting again. What can we do to, uh, to appease our God? You know, he's going to destroy us. What can we do? However, in the Bible, the Bible doctrine of reconciliation, the roles are completely reversed, absolutely reversed. Because God has become the initiator and the achiever of reconciliation in Jesus, his Son. In strong contrast to the pagan view, the New Testament writers everywhere emphasise the undeserved love towards mankind. And John writes this in his first letter, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Atonement or atoning sacrifice means turning away of God's wrath. Remember we read from Romans that God's wrath is being poured out. Well, Jesus took our place and took the wrath of God. So God turns away his wrath from us and Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. John Calvin, the famous French theologian of the 16th century, wrote about this scripture. He says, These words clearly demonstrate this fact, so that nothing might stand in the way of his love for us, God appointed Christ as a way of reconciling us to himself. For in some indescribable way, God loved us and yet was angry towards us at the same time until he became reconciled to us in Christ. And this is Paul's consistent emphasis. Here's a few scriptures that, that, that outline this. Romans 5. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And then Colossians 1 again that we've already quoted but it's worth repeating. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now God, but he has now reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, all of it not just part of it, but all of it is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. This is the true gospel. There is no other gospel. And it's a protest against any self-salvation. There's no do-it-yourself salvation. 
Sadly, people still want to do that. People's pride will not allow them to say that they cannot save themselves or be justified in God's sight. I've had people, I've talked to people and said, and do you know that we're all going to have to face the judgment? Well, it's not going to be a problem. I'll tell God what I think of him when I get there, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, you'll be flat on your face. You'll be absolutely horrified and trembling with fear uh, in the presence of a holy God. But people think they can do it themselves. But these scriptures are a protest against that. So from the scriptures we looked at so far, we could get the impression that Jesus, as God's agent of reconciliation, um, was some kind of third party um, representing God so that God would not have to bear the terrible cost of this reconciliation. Like, well, okay, Jesus, you you go, I'm going to keep back here. Um, You you go and take the flak uh, and I'll remain here. A a bit like somebody like a a, a stuntman who is representing a, a, a famous actor Uh, The famous actor gets all the glory, but the stuntman gets all the pain. There was nothing like that at all, because we see from today's key verse that God was intimately involved. It's the mystery of the Trinity. We can only look at facets of this. We can't always fully understand it, but it's a mystery of the Trinity that God was suffering in Jesus on the cross. Colossians 1, 19, 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is the same substance as God. He isn't a different substance. He is the same substance of God. He has equality with God. And it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that it was God who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So God was not absent. We sometimes try and paint that kind of picture, you know, the father turned his face away and so on. But God was intimately involved in the suffering of Jesus. There's a song that was written some time ago by Sidney Carter, who seemed to write a few uh, Christian songs some years back. And it depicts one of the thieves who was alongside Jesus, crucified alongside Jesus, and he's bemoaning the fact that he's being crucified and Jesus is being crucified. And the refrain refrain goes like this, it's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter, uh, hanging on the tree, and the song uh, goes on to explain to us how it is indeed God who is being crucified in the person of Jesus. So God did not have to change or compromise in order to reconcile us to himself. But it cost him dear. It cost him dear. Isaiah 53, very famous passage that you'll know well, but it helps us, I think. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The punishment that reconciled us to God was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Somehow, Jesus took responsibility for our sins. We sometimes use the word imputed. Our sins were imputed to Jesus and in exchange, his righteousness 
was imputed to us. You can think about it as credited to or put to our account. It was put to our account. And Jesus was our substitute. Our sins were credited to him and he was punished for them and his righteousness was put to our account. Sometimes because of the words that are used it's hard to explain. You can sometimes think that Jesus actually became sinful but he did not. He only took responsibility for sin. They were put to his account. Just in the same way that the fact that we are accounted as righteous, legally righteous before God, doesn't make us righteous in our lives. We still have to live out a life of righteousness. But before God, we are justified because God's righteousness has been imputed to us in Jesus. The technical term for this is penal substitution. You've heard that term. It's been a bit in the Christian news in recent years because some even prominent Christians have denied it. They've said, no, it's cosmic child abuse that God should punish his son in place of us. But this is exactly what the scriptures teach. Penal substitution is is written into all the verses, really, that we've been looking at. That Jesus took our place, that he was punished in our place so that we would not be punished. So we see that being reconciled to God, being at peace with him is a result of a double transfer. And Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A modern translation says, God took the sinless Christ and poured our sin into him, but in exchange gave us his righteousness. So reconciliation is not therefore, in the first place, a change in us. Because after all, it was done while we were still sinners, while we were still God's enemies, long before we even thought about God. Uh, This amazing act was done. But it's God dealing with his own hostility to man. He, He is the offended party, yet it's he who removes the ground of his alienation from corrupt mankind. Uh, There's a story told about the treasurer to uh, the, I think it was the last Tsar Tsar of uh, Russia, Tsar Nicholas. And the treasurer was in charge of the palace finances. But unfortunately and very foolishly he started dipping into the funds for his own use, whether he was trying to invest it to make money, I don't know. But he got further and further into debt and um, one night he was poring over the books, desperately trying this way and that to make the figures reconcile, but they wouldn't. He was completely without success. Finally, he acknowledged that he was absolutely hopelessly in debt and uh, there was nothing he could do about it. He was beyond recovery. And as he looked at the irreconcilable figures, uh, he took his pen and he wrote across the bottom of the page, who can pay so great a debt. And with that, he slumped over his desk and fell asleep. Next morning, he woke with a great sense of fear and dread, knowing that something was wrong, and then it occurred to him what was wrong, and he looked up, and he looked on the page again, and under what he had written, who can pay so great a debt, was written, paid in full, Tsar Nicholas II. And that's a kind of little illustration of the gospel. He could not 
he could not pay his debt. And as a result, he would be alienated from his master. But the master, out of his own funds, uh, paid off the debt. So he's paid in full. And that's how it is with God, with Jesus. You know, the one who is offended has paid the debt so that we can be free from accusation. The Bible records a number of things that Jesus said from the cross. One of those was in his dying breath, it is finished, or it has been finished. It's completed, meaning that his work of salvation was done. All that the Father had sent him to do, he had accomplished, and it was finished. The Greek word, and it's probably one of the three Greek words I might know, is tesselestai. And I can show off now with my Greek, see. And um, apparently it was in common use in the marketplace and where um, people would run up debts with traders, which would all be recorded, um, when they paid off their debt, the trader uh, would then take the, 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 the bill and he'd write across the bottom, tetelestai, which means paid in full. Paid in full. And that's what Jesus has accomplished. He's paid in full our debt to God. There's no debt, no barrier, no hostility between God and man because the reason of the ho- for the hostility has been removed. Christ, di- Christ died once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, to bring us peace with God. So as the carol says, God and sinners reconciled. However, whilst reconciliation has been achieved for all people, it is yet to be enjoyed by all people. If it's to be enjoyed, it must be received. And uh, if it's never received, it will never be possessed. To be saved, we know we need to receive the Saviour, don't we? We know that Jesus came and people rejected him, his own people rejected him, but the Bible says, for as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. We have to welcome Jesus into our lives as our Lord and Saviour. We have to welcome Jesus into our lives as the reconciler because there is no other way. If Christ is rejected, there is no other way of reconciliation. There's no other way to be right with God. And uh, it's the writer to the Hebrews that reminds us that outside of Christ, no sacrifice for sins is left. But, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. We must receive the reconciler. We must welcome him into our lives. It's not enough for us also <coughs> as now as believers <coughs> to embrace Christ and enjoy this reconciliation with God because Paul tells us that we are now God's ambassadors. God is making his appeal to others through us and there is a commandment for us to take this message of reconciliation into a lost world that is at enmity with him. Paul says to the Corinthian church, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now it's interesting, he's talking to the church and, uh, and yet he's still saying to them, be reconciled to God. We implore you. It's an imperative. We implore you, be reconciled to God. I don't know 
whether he was conscious of the fact that in that church community there would be people who were not yet reconciled to God, I don't know. But it's still our message and it's our message this morning. And we implore you, be reconciled to God. If you have not received the reconciler, then you are not reconciled to God and you're still God's enemy and the wrath of God still rests on you. It's very clear from the scriptures. It's a terrible message, but the answer is wonderful. It is glorious what the answer is. Receive the reconciler and you will be reconciled to God and your sins will not be counted against you because the reconciler took them on himself. So our plea is, if you've not, if you know that you've never wholeheartedly given your life to Jesus, then do it because you need to be reconciled to God. We've been given this message, a ministry of reconciliation, first and foremost to bring people into fellowship with God. But it affects human relationships too. Just as I said earlier, alienation from God has led to other alienations. And um, that, uh, so that people um, need to be reconciled to God, they also need to be reconciled to one another. And the reconciliation that we have with God is the source of reconciliation between people. The example given by Paul in the New Testament is between Jews and Gentiles. They were like oil and water. Uh, in their present state, they were totally irreconcilable. I don't know if you remember when we were looking through Paul's letter to the Ephesians that we spent a little bit of time on this. But let me read a verse that will help us from Ephesians 2, verse 14. This is speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. We talked about hostility before, didn't we? By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So God says we take the Jew, we take the Gentile, we place them both into Christ through their faith in him and they become one new people, one new tribe. There's no longer a reason for enmity between them. So being reconciled to God helps us to be reconciled with people. In Galatians he writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. It's a salutary thought that if we are to be effective in preaching the message of reconciliation, we must as a church uh, community be a living demonstration of this reconciliation. And it's like the whole of the message that we preach, the message of grace. If we preach a message of grace to people, we have to, we have to demonstrate grace to people. It, it's so, so important. We need to demonstrate it. We talk about Jesus as being the Word being made flesh. Well, the Word has to be made flesh in us. If we preach a Word and it's not demonstrated in our, word, in our life, then it loses its value and its power and it's so so important. So, in church life, if for any reason we become offended by a brother or a sister, such that there's some alienation or some estrangement, then we must quickly and urgently put that right. We must be reconciled to our brother and sister. But you might say, well, what about if it's not our fault? 
Well, you still need to be reconciled. Even if it's not our fault, even if it's going to cost us something because we have to humble ourselves and put aside our hurt uh, and think about the other person. That we need to do it because we've got to be like our father who, he was the offended party and yet he was the one who took the initiative to remove that which was the the barrier between us and him so that we could be reconciled to him. So it's so important that we work it out in church life. As we draw to a close, let's look at our key scripture again. There's something that we've omitted to mention in it. So Colossians 1, 19, 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, whilst we've spent most of our time exploring how God has reconciled man, people, to himself, we see from these verses that the scope of reconciliation goes far beyond that. We see that the reconciliation that Jesus achieved by his sacrificial death was cosmic. It said said all things, all things. He's reconciling all things to himself. This is because the whole of nature, uh, the whole of the created order, suffered when man sinned against God. The whole of the created order suffered and came under God's judgment. And uh, what was previously pronounced as good uh, is now subject to decay and frustration. If you're familiar with the early chapters of Genesis, you will know that when God finished his creation, he pronounced it good. Everything was good. Everything was perfect. Man, uh, the animals, the vegetation, everything was perfect. But then when man sinned, when man chose rebellion, uh, and to be independent from God, we see that the whole of creation was affected. Uh, it was cursed by that. And that's bad news. Now, obviously, we, uh, many of us appreciate our world. We think it's a wonderful world. There's so much that's good and wholesome in our world. We can go out uh, on a lovely day in the countryside and see the, the wonder of, of God's creation. But we know that it's flawed. It is flawed and it's often hostile to man. And, you know, people who are perhaps are atheists and they say, I, you talk about a loving God who's a creator, how can God create this particular aspect of creation which is cruel or otherwise, you know, red in tooth and claw and so on? Here is the answer. It's a result of man's sin that creation uh, is put in this position of frustration uh, and decay. But there is good news. Paul tells us in his letters to the Romans that God is first reconciling people to himself. He is making them children of God and that's his first activity. But when that's complete, he's going to restore the whole of creation. God is not leaving creation to be frustrated and to be in decay. And in Romans 8 we read this. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for people to be reconciled to God. And God in his, in his plan and purpose has a number. When that full number has come in, then God's going to move on and do something else. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. God has not left creation to itself. He's got a plan and a purpose. And Peter, um, speaking to the people in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 3, he says this, He, that's Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So that's God's plan and purpose through Christ to restore everything. The culmination of this reconciling work for creation we read about in the end of the Bible which is the creation of a new heavens and a new earth with a glorified church in the midst of God dwelling in his people, among his people with peace and harmony. Not like it is at the moment. And um, this is all because uh, uh, Jesus, through his death, is the reconciler, not just of people like us, but of the whole cosmos. So, perhaps we can see even more the breadth and depth and height of the work of Jesus on the cross. It's far bigger than we ever thought it was. What Jesus accomplished was not just about dealing with my sin, but it's about bringing me to God, bringing me to in peace with God and dealing with the whole of creation so that there will be paradise restored in terms of the new heavens and the new earth. Just to close, I'm going to read, or we can read, um, that passage from Revelation 21. This is what it's all about. This is about what all Jesus' reconciliation is about. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. We know from earlier chapters that is the church, the, the bride of Christ coming down from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, totally reconciled. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Isn't that a fantastic picture? Isn't that something to look forward to? That is our hope. That's our hope as Christians. We, we, we often love this world and the things about it that God has given us greatly to enjoy. But there are, it's only a shadow of what God is going to provide and plan for us. My question is, do you want to be part of this? Do you want to be part of this new creation? this company of people, this bride of Christ? If so, you have to receive the reconciler. You can't wait until that last judgment uh, before you do. You have to do it now. You have to receive the reconciler now. Otherwise, <coughs> as the writer to the Hebrews said, there is an, an awesome spectre of judgment uh, and so on. So, that, that's my plea. Paul said, we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. Make sure that you are reconciled with God, even today. Paul says, 
Now is the time. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. We don't leave it any longer. So be reconciled to God and receive Jesus the Reconciler. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we understand that, Lord, in our natural state, Lord, we're at enmity with you. Lord, even if we have nice thoughts about you sometimes, Father God, we've ignored you. Um, Lord, maybe we've even blasphemed you. Um, Lord, terrible things in our lives. But Lord, thank you that even in that state, you loved us. And Lord, you sent Jesus, our reconciler. You sent him to pay the price for our sins uh, and to bring us to you. Father God, I pray that as a company of people we will be an obvious demonstration of that reconciliation. Lord, we know that we do sin, that we do offend one another from time to time. But Lord, let it be seen that we are quick uh, to follow our Heavenly Father and be reconciled to brother and sister so that we demonstrate the truth we proclaim. Father, thank you for all that Jesus is to us, Lord, and more. Lord, help us, Lord, to revel in it. Lord, help us to glory in it. Help us to savour the things of Christ so that we may love him more and worship him, not just now, but through eternity. Amen. Thank you.